Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Let me pray for us once more and we'll dive into God's word together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. Everything that was just prayed, we just say yes and amen to it. Um, Lord, we cannot uh, labor well, we cannot think well, and we cannot encounter you in your word apart from the work of your gracious Holy Spirit. So we know that as we gather here together today that you are with us, and we ask that you work mightily in our hearts and in our minds. We pray this in your name. Amen. So as you guys just heard, we are resuming a short series, uh, taking a break from the Gospel of Luke that we've been working through for a while um, to look at the story of the whole Bible. And we're doing this not only because we want you to be able to understand the story of this big, important book, but also because we want you to be able to read it for yourself. If you've wrestled with reading the Bible, this series is designed not to remove the wrestle. We'll always wrestle. Um, but to wrestle more op, uh, optimistically, to know that we can meet God, that this is sufficient for us today. And we've already walked through the majority of what is called the Old Testament. And today we're beginning a portion um, that the Jews and the Hebrews called the writings. We're looking at the first part of the writings, uh, which is often categorized as wisdom, literature, or poetry. And my guess is, for many of us, this is the style of uh, scripture, the genre of scripture that you're most familiar with. It's in the wisdom literature that we read of Proverbs that still kind of float in our moral consciousness today, that pride comes before the fall, a cheerful heart is good medicine, a friend loves at all times. This morning, as I just said, it's actually Paul, not Stephen. Stephen, you're okay. I'm glad you're here. Don't panic. Paul is preaching uh, uh, one of these very texts at Journey Church, Psalm 23, for the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. British rock bands have paid homage to the preacher of Ecclesiastes saying to everything, turn, 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 there is a season, turn, turn, turn. However, even though we may be familiar with aspects of wisdom literature, we cannot actually understand these texts or apply it to our own lives if we fail to see how they too are part of God's story to redeem a broken people through the work of Jesus Christ. What we encounter today is not merely wisdom or poetry. What we encounter is Christian wisdom and Christian poetry. To remove that important adjective is to lose it all. It's to read all of it and to still be a fool. And as we've done so far in each of these sermons, we're going to do three things together. First, we're going to survey the story. We're going to see the big picture of how this sur- how the story is developed in this part. Then we're going to study the story. We're going to learn to look at the genre and the context and to read it rightly. And then lastly, we're going to savor the savior of the story, which is where we see how this story connects to Jesus Christ. And so let's begin today by getting a survey of the story. Where do we stand in the story of scripture when we encounter these wisdom and poetry books? And as I said, we're following uh, the order of the the Hebrew Old Testament. And so the order that we're looking at and the books we're looking at today begin with Ruth, Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And sometimes included in this is the book of Lamentations, but I I addressed that briefly with the prophets that we looked at two weeks ago when we were together. And while not all of these books meet the narrow definition of either poetry or wisdom, it's often just talked of as this big name that stands as a banner over it. You call them the poetry books, you call them the wisdom books, but it's kind of its own category here. And as I mentioned before, when we read 
the wisdom literature, we tend to read them as kind of episodic. You know, you guys have TV shows where you watch the TV show and it's just this little blip and kind of how it connects to the rest of the series doesn't really matter. Um, But that's not how they were written. You know, we read a psalm a day, a Proverbs a day, or something like that. And while they have merit on their own, these two need to be understood in the whole story of the Bible. And help us understand and keep track of the story of Scripture, we've been following three primary themes that God created in the Garden of Eden. These themes typified perfection. And those themes were God's people, in God's place, in God's presence, Sin caused that to be ruined. And the rest of the story of scripture is God's covenant, God's volitional desire to redeem and restore all of those things through the work of Jesus Christ. And we've been looking at this kind of geographical progression and this theological progression so far through the book, but time kind of stands still in the wisdom books. We don't necessarily see the narrative of that storyline progressing seeing his presence and his people and his place restored. But what it does describe is what life is like when God's people are in God's place in the midst of God's presence. The majority of these books are written while King David and his son, King Solomon, are on the throne of Israel in the promised land, in the city of Jerusalem. And these are two kings whom God specifically blessed and caused his promise to flourish under them. The kingdom flourished, the kingship flourished, and the people flourished. And so in this way, it's almost helpful to think about these books as a snapshot or as a Polaroid. These are snapshots, not necessarily of a thing, but of a time. And maybe you have pictures like that if you were to open up your camera roll on your phone. When I proposed to Sarah, I gave her a picture, and it was a pretty picture. It was just of me. No, I was kidding. I gave her a picture, and it included a rural road with flowers and mountains and clouds dotting a blue sky. But the truth is, it wasn't a particularly unique picture. It was just out on Mullen Road facing Blue Mountain. There are lots of places, lots of roads like that. In fact, many of you could probably just open up your camera roll and come to me and show me a more beautiful picture. In fact, you could go today to the very spot, and though it's a different season of when I took it, you could recreate that picture. It's clear, it's beautiful, it's snowy, but it wouldn't be the same for you. Why? Because not just about the thing, it's about the time. The significance of this picture is it's the very spot where I first told her that I loved her. And that's what made the picture beautiful. It's what made it vibrant, most important. It was the reality behind the thing that in looking at that picture, I have this whole ecosystem behind it. And that's what most of wisdom literature is. You see, you can mouth the prayers of Psalms. You can use Solomon's pickup lines from Song of Solomon. You can practice the mechanics of Proverbs and utter the vanity of Ecclesiastes. You can recreate the picture. But the power of the picture is dependent upon the relational reality behind it. These exist when God's presence is dwelling with his people through the goodness of his kings. The beauty is in not merely what they say, but the relationship behind it. Wisdom not only shows us what human flourishing looks like, but it shows us why humans flourish. 
And we flourish when God is on his throne and we align ourselves with his rule. That's when we begin to make sense of life, to lose the king, to take these books and remove it from God's good king, ruling his people in his place with his direct presence is to lose all of the wisdom, to lose all of the praise, to lose all of the prayers of these books. And this is our main point today as we endeavor to see Jesus in the wisdom. What we see quite simply is the good life under God's rule. We have no good life apart from God's rule. And where God's rule is, there is hope, even in a broken world, for the good life. These books show the beauty of living in the pinnacle of God's covenant kingdom, this snapshot of time where it seemed everything was so perfect. And it calls you, as the reader, to align your lives with that kingdom as well. And while there's not much geographical or narrative progression in these, there's one big theological progression, and this is what we see. Seeing God's rule gives us something to see in all of life. Wisdom literature destroys checkbox Christianity. It gets rid of all of our silos because if God is ruling, his rule is comprehensive. You see, worldly wisdom and self-help has as its basis self-sufficiency. You get wise so that you have no need. But biblical wisdom is divinely dependent. We become wise and reliant on the God who rules all things. When we can understand our relationship with the King of Kings, the whole of our life is influenced by his wisdom. And consider what was just read for us in Psalm 89 and notice the connection and notice specifically the experience between the life of God's people and God's King. This is going to be Psalm 89. We're just going to look at verses 11 through 18 here. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, in, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted, for our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel." So here you see at the end, there's this beautiful parallel. That's often how the poetry books are written. Our shield belongs to the Lord, our king to the Holy One of Israel. Everyone wants a shield. Everyone wants a refuge. Everyone wants the assurance of safety. What is that? The king. To align ourselves under God's king, we get the beautiful relief of living in light of God's rule. When God is on the throne, we have hope, even when it seems bleak. And with that said, let's begin our second point this morning to study the story. And what I want to do here is I want to give us two principles for how we ought to read the wisdom literature. And then in brief, I'm going to walk through each of these six books and point out to us just that simple connection between the rule of God and your lived experience in life. And so the first thing we have to do when it comes to reading wisdom is we must read with our minds. Read with our minds. 
To be the wise man is not to become some great Aristotle. It's actually to simply become Winnie the Pooh and think, think, think. It's to think deeply on what you read. Consider Psalm 1, verses 3 through 4. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. To read this well, we need to think. We need to understand the contrast being made here. How does a tree contrast with chaff? Well, a tree is solid and a chaff is just, and it's gone. Therefore, what does that experience share about the one who is wise, who delights in the law of the Lord, and the one who is wicked, who rejects the wisdom of the Lord? Moreover, it invites us not just to, to think about the grammar and the comparison there, but it's calling you to think about the beautiful allegories and the illustrations themselves. The tree, the blessed man who delights in the law of the Lord, drives his roots deep into the ground, pulling nourishment from a source that is not himself. It reaches to the heavens and provides shade and blessing to those around it. Therefore, if we delight in God's word, we will grow deeper roots. The winds of life will shake us, but it will not fall us. We too will provide benefit and relief to those who draw near. You see, the beautiful benefit of allegory is we get to think on these things and draw from the world that God himself uses to illustrate his goodness. But more than simply reading with our minds, the wisdom literature calls us to read with our emotions. We read with our minds and we read with our emotions. Part of why God has chosen to use such vivid language is because it incites in us the kindling of our emotional life. What we have in these passages is the songbook of the human soul and the affirmation of human emotion. In many ways, these books are to the Christian what bumpers are when you go to the bowling alley. It keeps us out of the gutters. There are psalms where the psalmist is so distraught. If you've been watching the news this week, you've seen some terrible violence that the world is in an outcry over. David has seen those similar things. And he is so aghast, so wounded, so upset that David, a man after God's own heart, calls that God would kill the children of his enemy. Now, what do we do with that? Do we go and create a theology of, like, retributive murder? No, but what are we seeing David do? He's taking his emotions, all of his rage, and he's laying it before God, and he's trusting the bumpers. We can take our anger to the Lord and know that this is a safe place to process it. In the book of Job, an exacerbated Job brings his frustration to God, but in the end, he is comforted by the same God who once frustrated him. In the book of Song of Solomon, we read of individuals burning with lust, and they have to wrestle with how to engage with that in a way that submits to God's rule over sexuality, and it is for their joy. It's in this, one, it's in this way that the wisdom literature almost provide to our experiential world the greatest apologetic of Christianity. It's wrapped in these pages. 
the raw, raw reality of life and the balance they provide. Consider uh, Proverbs 29, 11, which says this, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds back. But consider also Psalm 5, verses 1 through 3. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and I watch. So what do we do with God's wisdom? We do not give full vent of our emotions and send it into the watching world as if there is no king who cares. But instead, we take the reality of those emotions and we hurl them down the lane of God's mercy, knowing that in the end, to wrestle with what we feel and what we think and what we experience in the tension of the God who created us, this here is safety. This is the self-care of the Christian soul to hurl yourself and all of your life experience as a sacrifice to the Lord and then to watch. In the story of scripture, the wisdom books show us how profound God's rule is. How profound? It engages not only our hands, but our minds and our hearts. It rules over the whole of who you are. And with that being said, let's progress really quickly through these books and see how they fit in this story of God's rule and authority and our desire to have a good life. First, we begin in the book of Ruth. And this might seem odd. If you've read God's word before, Ruth comes actually way before this in our version of the Bible that we have. And the books are just kind of set up a little differently. And apart from understanding the story of scripture, it's really odd to actually place Ruth in the context of the wisdom books. But it's as if, when the Hebrews put this together, the same Bible that Jesus would have been reading, that they knew you could only understand the wisdom that followed if you understood this, what happens in this short little book. And this is unique because Ruth is a short historical account of a non-Israelite woman who had been married to a Jewish man and left to die when her husband died. But miraculously in the story, she finds a kinsman redeemer for her. And they fall in love and they're married. It's the only book in this section of six books that's written in story or narrative form instead of poetry. But its implications are so profound if we want to understand what happens afterwards. Because after the whole story has passed and Ruth has married Boaz, we see this in, verses, in chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid, her on, laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave, a name, gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So there we see the stunning significance of this book if we want to understand the wisdom literature. 
because behind this seemingly random short love story in the middle of the Bible is actually the lineage of King David, the man after God's own heart, the king who God was going to covenant a kingdom forever. You see, the book of Ruth is about order coming out of chaos and meaning coming out of sorrow. In places where it seemed everything was going wrong, God worked. The wise God of the universe accomplished everything according to plan. And the result of this seemingly serendipitous book is that we have King David and King Solomon, the pinnacle of the kingdom. You see, Ruth illustrates what all the rest of the wisdom literature assumes. Wisdom doesn't work because it's smart and effective on its own. There are lots of helpful, wise sayings in life, things that involve tying your shoes and how to navigate in the woods. But Christian wisdom doesn't work simply because it stands on its own. Wisdom works because God works. If there were not a faithful God behind the reality of his words, if God had no ability to direct the course of history and held in his hand the outcome of all of our lives, if God were a weak and dependent God, then wisdom had no merit and you should find something else. But if this God is king of kings and lord of lords, sovereign ruler of the history of the world, then we can trust his wisdom even when it seems that we have lost everything we needed to get on in life. Because God works, there is hope for our praise and power in our wisdom. And just to highlight this all the more, what follows the book of Ruth is the book of Psalms, which opens with the treasury of David, Ruth's great, great grandson. What we meet in the book of Psalms is a prayer book and a hymnal for all of God's people. But what we see more importantly is that here is a king in Israel who cares about the people's worship. David, Solomon, and the other psalmists recorded these prayers and psalms in the book and wrote them down. Why? So that you could worship God as they worshiped God. That you might take your experiences and worship God in the midst of them. Psalms models the leadership of worship. David, as the people's good king, wanted to draw others into the joy of his worship. He was pluralistic with the treasure of his own heart. He did not want to hoard it, but he gave it to his brothers to say, come and see that there is no end to the joy of being saved by God. And what he does in the midst of this, we started Psalms this week in our Bible reading plan. If you have the app, you could follow along with us. There's also paper at the back you can grab too. But you see that David walks with us in this spectrum of his emotions, in anger, in joy, in frustration, in sorrow, And in feasting, he says, this is what it looks like to worship God when you feel like this. This is what it looks like to take the true reality of yourself and worship God in the midst of it. You see, God cared too much for his people to not teach them how to worship. And these Psalms teach us how to worship. But there is a principle that sits through the whole book of Psalms, and it's one we see right off the bat in Psalm chapter 2. Listen to this. See if you can see the theme of authority and experience here. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord 
and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them, that's the nations of the bad kings, with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The pinnacle of Israel's worship is the welfare of God's son, the king. If God's people take refuge in God's anointed king, they'll find refuge and worship forever in the midst of a broken world. Did you see what's happening? The nations are raging. There are schemes, there are conspiracies, there is hardship, but they worship. Why? Because God's king will endure. What hope do we have for worship? Even when things look bleak, the hope that the Lord would have set his king on his holy hill forever. No matter what is going on in your life, if the king of God is on the throne, worship, security, And salvation is possible. In the midst of a broken world, God's king stands as hope for worship. That's what Psalms shows us. Whatever your experience, whatever your enemy, the king makes a way forward to worship. The book of Job is one that scholars don't have a clear idea where it fits in the biblical story. Some think it could have been the earliest of all the books of scripture written, but the Jews had no problem placing Job here in wisdom literature because its central theme is the authority of God which orients the realities of our life. Job begins being afflicted in many ways by the devil, but right off the bat, what do we see? That the devil has no authority that God does not allow. God is in control even of the devil. And the remainder of the book tracks Job. It's kind of like, maybe this is helpful. Think of Job as the world's first effort in social media. It's just Job and three friends throwing their ideas out in the abyss and thinking that they could solve life on their own. The result is not good. And the problem is, as they're beginning to understand why bad things happen to good people and why good things happen to bad people, that they have truth but they don't have tension. You see, if you pick any one of the things that Job's friends or Job talked about, it might sound really true and good on its own. But if we lose the tension of the realities of life, that is your experience and hardship and wickedness and evil, and if we lose the tension of a God who is holy, just, and pure, then we lose all of our hope. But the story of Job is a story that if we want to fully answer the questions of judgment and evil and blessing and joy, we have to wrestle with the tension of living life in light of a holy and perfect God. In other words, Job's main point is this. Listen carefully here. The greatest gift we have is not God's wisdom. 
the greatest gift we have is wisdom of God. I'll say that again. The greatest gift we have is not God's wisdom. The greatest gift we have is wisdom of God. That is, when we know God, we can make sense of the rest of our life. You see, a fourth friend shows up right before God speaks. His name is Elihu. And he reminds these friends, he enters into their babble, and he reminds them of this reality in Job chapter Where am I going here? Job chapter 36, verses 22 through 29. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for him his way? Or who can say you've done wrong? Remember to extol his work of which men have sung. All mankind has looked on it. Man beholds from afar. Behold, God is great and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable for he draws up drops of water and they distill his mist in rain which the skies pour down and drop on mankind abundantly. Elihu reminds us that unless we know God, we cannot make sense of life. There is no peace because there's no tension. But in God's mercy, the unsearchable, the transcendent, the God who is far off, talks to us. He makes himself known. He makes it possible for us to transition from wisdom that is God's wisdom, which is on the outside, to wisdom of God. He invites us into relationship with him. God then begins to speak in the book of Job, and he calls us to trust in his wisdom and in his character, even if it doesn't make sense to you at the time. Consider Job's own reflection in Job 13, 15, when he says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Job's life was bleak and he couldn't make sense of it in a clear linear line. And maybe you've been in a position like that too. Maybe you've wondered as Job wondered, where is wisdom? How can I make sense of this? Is God even trustworthy? Job sat in that moment too. And in that moment, he didn't have an answer, but because of what he knew about God, he did have hope. And you know how Job spoke of this hope? Job 19, verses 25 through 26. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth, After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God. Job knew that somehow, some way, he would be redeemed. The Lord would give Job relief from the trials of life by sending a redeemer. And because of that, when all was said and done, because of the work of God and his mysterious redeemer, all would be made right. Wisdom believes that God is wise, even if we can't see it. And then the book of Proverbs comes into the midst and says, if this is your God, submit to him and fear him in all of your life. See God everywhere. The main principle of Proverbs is what we see in Proverbs 1 verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So fear there doesn't mean this 
afraidness of God. It's this fear, like you fear the loss of oxygen. You want it. You need it. It's a desperate reliance upon God. It shows us that God not only cares about our worship, but he cares about the whole of our life. Read the book of Proverbs, and I dare you to find one area of your life that God is not concerned with. The Dutch theologian uh, Abraham Kuyper said that there's not one square inch of this world over which the Lord has put his finger, and there's not one square inch of this world that the Lord has put his finger and said, mine. God cares about your business plans. He cares about your parenting life. He cares about your relational life. He cares about your finances. He cares about your leisure. He cares about your conduct. He cares about your words. He cares about all of it. God's rule in the book of Proverbs is the gravity of the Christian experience. When engineers go to test a new plane or a rocket, you can bet that before they did anything, they considered the law of gravity. Everything depended upon that. When we pursue godly wisdom, we must first consider the ruling influence of God in our lives or we will never get off the ground. This is where we come to start. Proverbs 16 is often called the spine of Proverbs and notice the connection it makes. Proverbs 16 verses 9 and 10. The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. An oracle is on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. How might you get to where you want to be in life? How might you be wise? How might you have the good life? Consider the words of the wise king and know that he establishes your steps. What wisdom is then is to not plan our own steps, but to realize and align our plans with the God who has established our way. And in that, where is the peace in a confused world? It's where there is no sin. Sin steals your peace. But here is a life of peace, walking in light of the king. That's Proverbs. The book of Ecclesiastes is uh, one of my favorite, actually at our community group this past week, uh, I had to answer what my favorite book of the Bible was. It's Ecclesiastes. I love it. And here's why. I'm young. And one of the famous errors of youth is constantly thinking that all things considered, you could have done it better than the last guy who tried. But Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon, whom God blessed, if you remember back when we were in 2 Samuel, God blessed with all wisdom and all power, beyond of which no one would surpass. And in this drastic scandal of grace, see, God gave that to Solomon. Why? Because Solomon wanted to rule God's people well. But what did Solomon do with all that wisdom and all that might? He used it to run away from God. He used it to try and find life apart from the God who gave it to him. He had an experiment. And we read of this experiment in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 9 through 11. What did Solomon, with all of his wealth and all of his wisdom, seek to do? He tells us, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. This was my reward in all my toil. Then I considered all my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. You see, Solomon took all of the firepower that God gave him to be the good ruler, and he pursued 
all of the pleasures of the earth. And in the end, he found none. Now what's interesting is the story of the book of Ecclesiastes is not that Solomon didn't find life and pleasure. It's simply that he didn't find it in the place he thought he would. And you won't find it in the place you think you would. You might think that with enough sex, enough money, and enough good fortune, you can really be satisfied. And if anyone else tells you otherwise, it's because they didn't do it as well as you could. They didn't have the resources that you have. But if you could do it, you would be the wise man. But Solomon did it. And he did it better than you. No one throws a house party like Solomon. You will never sleep with more people than Solomon did. You will never have more wealth than Solomon did. Solomon makes the most hedonistic warrior of our day look like a choir boy. And at the end of his experiment, look at what he says. What did he find in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 19? Everyone to whom God had given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. Verse 20, it's not up there, but this is actually the, the, the hinge of it. He says this, For he will not much remember the days of his life, for God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. How will man find joy in his days? when God occupies your heart. God is at the bottom of all true joy. How then should we live? Look at what Solomon says to those who think that joy might exist outside of God's rule. What this wise man, this scandalous sufferer, concludes his book with in Ecclesiastes 12, 13. For the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. Ecclesiastes shows us that those who want to be wise about joy need to turn their lives into joyful obedience. And just when we think that that is the most mundane and bland life we could have, here comes Song of Solomon, the reason why all you guys are here today. Did you know there's an entire book in the Bible dedicated to sex? Have you read it? If you would, you would find that most of what the world tells you about God and his view of sex falls remarkably short of what is actually true. In vivid, steamy analogies, Solomon describes the joy of intimacy between a husband and a wife. And here we learn a couple things. First, we learn that God doesn't care about our culture's idol. If God comes to rule over your life, He's also come to rule over your sex life. This, too, is for your joy. Secondly, we see God's design for our sex lives. Solomon, in his Ecclesiastes days, his apostate days before he came back, enjoyed unprecedented amounts of sex. But at the end of all things, what did Solomon rejoice in? What caused him to pen the world's most sensual love poem? What did God so choose to inspire by the hand of Solomon and preserve for all time through his Holy Spirit for our good? 
The joy of an exclusive love between a husband and wife who live out sexual intimacy in submission to the God who made them. He tried everything and Solomon says, this is the good life. This is what the world is looking for. Here is sexual joy. Here is the romance and passion we long for in the sphere of sexuality. To be wise with it is to place everything we have in submission to God. And here is God's king, King Solomon, who shows us what true sexual intimacy looks like. And this might be the weirdest place possible to transition into our last point. But it's relevant. Hold on. This is where we begin to look at how we savor the savior of the story. Where is Jesus in the wisdom books? You see, the need for wisdom, isn't it funny? We all want to be wise, but none of us want any gray area. But wisdom assumes that we often don't know what to do. Wisdom doesn't actually assume your self-sufficiency. It assumes the end of yourself, that we need help. We need wisdom because life isn't always clear. We need wisdom because often it seems like good is failing and evil is soaring. Oftentimes it looks like God isn't working, but Jesus shows this tension. In the book of Hebrews, the author quotes Psalm 2 of the Lord's anointed kissing the son. And right before he does that, he says this in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high None of this life works without the king. Wisdom only works if there's a king on the throne. And Jesus is the king. He takes the throne of our hearts through faith. And we joyfully know because of Jesus that wise living is not only possible, but always profitable. You see, Jesus is the Psalm 2 greater king of David. And in him, the whole of the universe, not merely a small physical kingdom, the whole of the universe is upheld. That's why wisdom works, because there is not one molecule or atom or proton that exists or bounces in our cosmic world that is not upheld by the sovereign hand of Christ, our king. On the cross of Jesus, we find the tension of wisdom that when everything seems devastating to human eyes, death on a cross that it is life-giving by the Spirit of God. It seems when things are darkest, that light shone brightest. It seemed when things are most counterintuitive to the flesh, that we get the substitute Savior that our sins demanded and our souls needed. You see, Jesus is Job's Redeemer, who lives forever, calling out to us that when we encounter the trials of life, that we can trust in the character and nature of God. Why? Because we've seen it. Because he lived among us. Because he cherished what we saw earlier today, where he became the wisdom of God. Righteousness and justice. If we stand in Christ, we stand in the righteous provision of God. Jesus is the greater Eliehu, our brother friend who entered into our senseless babble and revealed to us the God we missed in the middle of it. 
When you need wisdom, here is Jesus who speaks to you first. And he says, have you considered my faithfulness? Have you considered my plan? Jesus is the greater Solomon who didn't need to taste sin for himself in order to help you. But he became the one who tasted your sin for you in order to save you. Jesus is the king whose rule produces the flourishing we've always wanted. Flourishing seen in Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 and 17. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What happens when our life is aligned with Christ the King? We become the Psalms one tree. We reach up in holiness and out in grace and mercy. The church comes together to celebrate the wisdom of God, which produces naturally as fruit produces abundantly. Jesus is the greater husband who loved his wife in ways Solomon didn't and Solomon couldn't. From this perspective, the book of Song of Solomon is not merely about human sexuality. It is about divine intimacy. Yes, Sex is beautiful according to God's plan between one man and one woman in marriage. But we all must submit our longings and our passions to God's design. But this intimacy, this love, this affection, this being knownness is not limited to those who are married. For those who are single, for those who are lung, for those who are divorced, for those who are same-sex attracted, Song of Solomon is for you in Jesus. It graciously, graciously shows that you, even you in wisdom, have no lack. That God is not so narrow-minded, not so foolish to leave off joy, satisfaction, and intimacy only for those who meet a specific criteria of interpersonal and human relationships. No, instead, who gets invited into this good life of intimacy? All who come to God through the king. Look at how Paul speaks of this, speaks hopefully to you. In Ephesians 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Here is the love that satisfies us forever. Here is the deepness of intimacy which satisfies us eternally. Here is not only intimacy with Jesus through faith, with the body that is the church, that we are together participating in this joyful, wise life of beauty. 
The wise man realizes this not according to the eyes of the flesh. For our world says to to deny whatever our sexual impulse is, is to deny the core essence of who you are. But we do not look at the world through the eyes of ourselves. We do not lean on our own understanding. Why? Because we've seen the foolishness. And here is life. Eyes that see the world in light of a Savior who loved us and gave himself for us who brings salvation out of our sin, order out of our disorder, and one day a kingdom out of our chaos. Kiss the Son, and blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, for us to be wise, we must first be taken. That is to be taken by the king, in the holy intimacy of salvation. Lord, I pray today that you give us eyes to see our weakness and our sinfulness and instead see the salvation of the gospel, which is foolishness to man, but the wisdom of God to all who believe. Lord, I pray that as we see this wisdom We do not place our hope in the circumstances of life, but in the king who rules over it all. Make us more and more your people by faith. We pray this in your name.